0: ChumbaCasino.com. Jumba. No purchase necessary. For by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Atlas Butler is built to keep you comfortable, and our plumbing services are no exception. You can rely on Atlas Butler for trusted, convenient plumbing and drain service. Our expert plumbers and drain specialists can take care of anything, from a broken water heater to a clogged drain. Call today, get it fixed today. That's our pledge to you.
1: If you believe reviews that say you're great, you're going to have to believe the reviews that say you're crap. So where do you draw that line?
0: I want to be a producer with a
2: hit show on Broadway.
1: You're listening to the Producer's
0: Perspective Podcast with your host, Tony Award winner Ken Davenport. Hey
2: everybody, it's Ken Davenport. Welcome back to the podcast. Boy, do we have a treat for you today. We have the composer and lyricist of this tune... Can you guess it? That is Paul Gordon's Forgiveness from Jane Eyre. It is a stunning song. If you don't know it, go listen to it. He is our guest today. He's going to be talking about all sorts of cool things, including how that show got to Broadway uh, and his brand new venture, Streaming Musicals, which he calls the future of theatrical distribution. So we'll get to Paul in just a second. Uh, But before we do... It is graduation season. We have lots of theater students graduating from their universities out there. You need a great gift for them? Guess what? I've got one for you. Get them Be a Broadway Star, the number one selling Broadway gift on Amazon.com. Be a Broadway Star. It is the only Broadway board game your college grad, your theater fan, can win a Tony Award. Before they actually win a Tony Award. So go to BeABroadwayStar.com or go to Amazon. Type in BeABroadwayStar.com and get it. I promise it's a ton of fun. You'll have a blast. Uh, and now let's get on with the podcast. But before we do, a little more forgiveness. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. My name is Ken Davenport. This is the Producer's Perspective podcast, which we've been doing for like almost 200 episodes now. So thank you so much for listening. Uh, And today, I'm, I'm very excited because today my guest is one of my favorite writers in all of musical theater. Tony nominated Mr. Paul Gordon. Welcome, Paul.
1: Thanks, Ken.
2: So Paul got that Tony nom for his beautiful musical Jane Eyre, which is where I discovered him like so many people did, which played on Broadway back in about 2000, 2000, right? yes. He also wrote the, the music and lyrics for Daddy Longlegs, which I produced off-Broadway, which is one of my most proud producing possessions. Uh, it's been seen around the world and now on Broadway HD as well. Also wrote Emma, Pride and Prejudice, Sense and Sensibility. He has a real flair for that time period, which we will talk about a bit. Um, But before we get to some of your more recent successes, um, how did you get started writing music, period? Forget even music theater, because you come from just a songwriting background.
1: Yes, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, for me growing up, you know, I was sort of grew up in the age of the Beatles. So as soon as I, I witnessed the Beatles and saw them, I knew that's what I wanted to do. And my first venture was not learning to play the guitar, it was actually learning to play the tennis racket and lip-sync the songs which I performed in front of my class. So that was my first foray into music.
2: (laughs) And what did you, did you learn guitar first? Yeah,
1: so I wanted to be a drummer. You know, I I wanted to be Ringo or Dennis Wilson from the Beach Boys and my dad very smartly learned to play guitar himself. He took a couple of guitar lessons and showed me the guitar and taught me a few chords. So I was eleven, and I learned a couple of chords and I instantly loved it, but he didn't teach me how to play any songs. So I decided to write my own. So that's really how I became a songwriter because I loved the idea of singing and playing, but because I didn't know how to play anyone else's songs, I just made up my own. Hmm.
2: And you probably how many in the Broadway composer peer group of yours, how many do you think uh, play guitar first were guitarists or could do you still compose on that, guitar oh
1: yeah the the latest show that i that i that i have coming out that we'll talk about no one called ahead i composed entirely on guitar there's several songs on daddy long legs you know secret of happiness obviously that i wrote on guitar guitar takes me back to my pop roots you know i grew up in bands and and, and you know had a life of pop music and rock and roll before broadway and so I, I love sort of the simplicity of getting back to that on guitar but, of course, for my more sophisticated scores, piano is, is the instrument that I write with.
2: So, Secret of Happiness, obviously I did a guitar. and I was like, that wasn't so obvious. Uh, okay. So, <laughs> tell us why that is so obvious that it uh, was on guitar. It's a beautiful tune. We'll try to get that one in here as well. I guess
1: maybe because I, I'm realizing that nobody's heard the original demos. You know, I just sat around one day on guitar and plucked that out. And I didn't even know it was for the show. I just really loved the chord pattern that I was playing. And I'll often sit around and come up with ideas on guitar, keep them on my record app, and then maybe a year later listen to them and go, oh, that that tune would be great in this show. I just have to write a lyric. That was the case with Secret of Happiness.
2: So do you know any other Broadway composers that compose on guitar?
1: I don't, actually. I know Jason wrote a few songs on guitar for Bridges, but I think he learned guitar to do that to sort of emulate a Joni Mitchell song, I think.
2: So you learned guitar first, and then you, were you self-taught in guitar? Yeah,
1: I I, I taught myself how to play guitar, and then when The Doors came out, I really wanted to learn the intro to light my fire. So I just sort of moved over to piano, and I started transposing my piano chords, my guitar chords to piano, and went, Oh, if I just play these chords, they'll show up on piano, so now I can play piano. And that's sort of how I learned.
2: You're not a very talented person, are you, Paul? Stop well, I'm not a very
1: musically educated person probably, as my music directors would tell you. So,
2: how did you get your first big break? How did that happen?
1: Um, so, you know, I I was writing with my writing partner in my pop music days, Jay Gruska, who I still write with, who is an Emmy-nominated TV composer. And we wanted to get our songwriting publishing deal. So, him and his sister walked into EMI music and played them like ten of our songs. And I had my first publishing songwriting gig where I think I got $150 a week to write songs, which was fantastic. And that was the start of my sort of pop music career. And then I later went on to you know be a staff writer for Warner Brothers and Chapel and then Warner Chapel when they moved and Geffen and, and Universal and a lot of places. So I did that For ten or fifteen years, and you know, I was very fortunate to have to write some number one pop songs.
2: So, tell our listeners what those were, in case they're unfamiliar.
1: Well, so I wrote, I co-wrote with Bobby Caldwell, Peter Cetera, Amy Grant hit "Next Time I Fall."
2: Oh my God!
1: And I didn't even know that. I love that song. Yeah, I had Amy Grant's first pop crossover hit, and then with Jay Grusko, we wrote a song called "Friends and Lovers." Which was, a, which was a hit for Eddie Rabbit and Juice Newton. It was a number one country song. And then it was a number one pop song at the same time. And I think that's really the first time two records were released at the same time. Totally different artists recording the same songs, and they were both hits.
2: Friends and lovers, that's what we are.
1: Yes, yes. Uh, uh, both to each other, I think people are more familiar with it. The title never sort of worked out. The song did.
2: So then how did you get bit by the theater bug? When
1: so I, when I was in the fifth grade, we saw an eighth grade production of Bye Bye Birdie at, at, at my junior high school, and I was completely blown away. I had never seen anything like it. Kids on stage acting and singing. It was this sort of art form that I knew I was aware of from movies, like my parents had taken me to The Sound of Music and West Side Story and all that stuff, but So from movies I knew it, but seeing it live was a literally profound, life-changing experience that I still remember. You know, and for a long time I I felt that eighth graders were the best actors and singers on the planet. So I I just really became obsessed with the art form, and even while I was doing pop music, I wrote a rock musical. I, I thought that, why hasn't there been another rock musical since Hair? And so I wrote a musical with some partners about the Venice Boardwalk called Greetings from Venice Beach that Katie Sagal was in at one time, Pamela Adlon was in it, a lot of Broadway people, Linda Hart, Clark Thorell. And and so that was my first foray into actually writing a musical, but we wrote it in L.A. and I had no theater connection. So it sort of, we got great reviews, but it sort of died in the, in the early 90s. Um, and then... You know, when I saw Les Mis, I I, I was so sort of blown away by the idea of it and the spectacle of it and that somebody had taken a novel in in the public domain and created this musical uh, around it. And I just wondered if I could do that. It was just a thought in my head. So I literally just tried to think, what's a classic novel I could adapt? And I started looking at some. Little Women was one of the first novels I picked up. But I also picked up Jane Eyre. And I was really unfamiliar with the story, so I just read the back, and I read the synopsis, and I went, is this a story that I would want to try to tackle? And I was looking for a story about a powerful woman. I was just really attracted to that idea, and I wanted something that left the audience uplifted. So by page 10 of Jane Eyre, I was in tears, and I really had to fight the urge to start writing until I finished the novel and actually saw where the story was going. So that's what I did. I finished the novel, and I spent a year writing it on my own. I had no connections to anybody in New York. So what I did was... um, Well, the the touring company of Les Mis was in town, and I knew the woman that was understudying Eponine because she was a pop singer. She was a background singer for Don Henley, Sally Dworsky, who also happened to be understudying Les Mis. She was my Jane on the demo, And she was the one that brought in Anthony Cravello at the very end of the project to be a servant. And when I met, you know, because everything was done, and Anthony just came in and was very good-natured and said, sure, I'll just sing one part, and said, you know, my friend John Carrad is in town, and he should hear this. And I went, great, well, that's exciting. So the next thing I know, I get a phone call from John Carrad saying, hey, I really like this but i don't think you should set it in the 19th century and i don't think it should be in england cuz you're american and you should modernize it and i went no i don't really like that idea and and now when i think about that i can't believe i had the balls to say no to him and he there was a little pause and he went well all right i would be willing to look at it in in this context he was staying at westwood he had a house in westwood cuz lemes was in town and he was still with Francis Raphael, And so he invited me to his little cottage in Westwood. And we were in the backyard with my script. And I'll never forget this. He went through my script with a red pencil, correcting my spelling and my grammar and going, this is not 19th century. This is American, not British. So after the session was all over and I was going, God, he hates me. And he just looked at me and he went, look, I don't know how you know how to do this but you do, and I would like to be your book writer and director. And, you know, I I was just floored. I was just, oh, my God, this is the greatest thing that ever happened. He gave me some notes on the show, and he suggested that I didn't have a closing song or an ending of Act One. And I was so inspired by the meeting that literally two days later, I came back and I had written Brave Enough for Love and Secret Soul, and I played it for him on the piano, and then we were just off and running.
2: I mean, that's that's such an amazing story on both counts, because at that time, John Caird was like the king shit. He right? was. I mean, listen, this is the co-director and book writer of Les Mis, and, all, like, and one, for you to be like, nah, I'm not so <laughs> interested in your ideas, Mr. Caird. Uh, and then, that he responded so well, and him saying,
1: you know how to do this,
2: what do you think he was actually saying? What?
1: I think I've always had a great love of musicals, and for whatever reason that I can't really explain, I've had an intuitive instinct about it. I just feel like I understand the art form. It's my wheelhouse. I loved writing pop music and trying to be Elvis Costello, but I really feel like musicals is something I innately understand and love. And I'm very opinionated about. And I think John saw that really early on. Which is why we still have outrageously fun fights about everything. Because he well, also has an instinct, which happens to be, some of the time, contrary to mine. I've witnessed some of those fun fights. You They're fun. Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: so tell me, you talk about, you know, you uh, enjoy writing pop music. And you're obviously very good at it. But you love musicals. What different muscles do you need for a Musical, a three-hour musical as opposed to a three-minute song. Like, is, what's different about
1: it? Well, writing a three-minute song is much, much, much easier. Um, wh- what I was most attracted to with musicals is that I spent a long time in pop music writing for other artists but also writing for myself as an artist. So I spent a long time writing about myself. And I got very bored with myself after a while. How many relationships could I write about? How many broken hearts? How many new perspectives? So when I when I transitioned from writing about myself to Charlotte Bronte, one of the greatest writers of all time, reading her prose and realizing, I can plagiarize all this, and it's okay. Uh, there were words on her page that, were, that, that I lyricized that... That obviously you have to work with things and and create it and make it your own. But I was so excited about this entire new universe where I could mine words and thoughts and ideas that weren't myself, but I still related to and felt like I had something to say along with it. But it no longer had to be just about me. And that was liberating.
2: Hmm. So what is it about this time? You've written a number of musicals in this era. Yes. Uh, is that because popular? Uh, because so many of them are in the public domain? Is it because you're just... What attracts you to this early... It's a
1: great question, and history. it's both. Because really, one of the keys in writing musicals, as you know, is coming up with a fantastic story. In order to create good musicals, we need a foundation in which to lay that musical. So any story in the public domain, generally, is a story that's lasted, say, 100 or 200 years so you know the story has lasted the test of time and as you know as a producer of musicals you know that's three-quarters of the battle is making sure that, that you're you're telling a story worth telling the fact that it's public domain and that you don't have to hire lawyers to get the rights as you know as a producer is also huge I mean we're not gonna lie that's a huge part of it and I'm not in a position where I can just take this great modern novel that I wrote or a movie that I love and say I want to do it and be able to get the rights. I try for a few things and I'm working on a few things, but that's a much harder road. And the other thing about taking a work in the public domain is that as an artist and as a writer, you have so much latitude and so much creative freedom. And what I always try to do is be respectful to the author. Imagine that if I was in the room with Jane Austen or Charlotte Bronte or Charles Dickens, like, would they kick the shit out of me or would they go along with what I'm saying and I feel for the most part that we've been respectful or I've been respectful to these authors and their work and trying to get the best out of the work now at the same time with say Emma and Jane Austen you have to make a lot of artistic creative decisions because there's a four or five hundred page novel and you have two or two and a half hours to tell your story so you have to really pare that down and so one of the the things that I think a writer has to possess when approaching that world is knowing what part of the story to tell and what part of the story not to tell. And that's always the challenge with public domain stories.
2: When you get a new musical idea or new story, what's the first thing you do? Like, okay, I'm going to sit down now and write Jane Eyre. You finally finish it. Uh, what's the first thing you do? Is it music first? Is it lyric first? Is it research? Is it lock yourself in a cabin?
1: That's a great question. The first thing that I try to do is try to not write music. Is just to stop myself from writing and and really to work on the book because the book is the foundation. Now, when I wrote Jane, and Emma, I never had any intention of being the book writer, but my first task, since I didn't have a partner, was to write everything myself, and that's so helpful. And writing the book out first lays your foundation, and then as I write the book, and then I realize dialogue that I've written, that needs to be a song. But I decide that later, because the book is the most important ingredient in any show. So as a composer, my instinct is to write music first, but I don't. I write the book first.
2: And then in the music lyric portion, which one of those comes first for you?
1: So trying to find the title or one line... But for me, the most important ingredient, and I will say this every time, is the music. To me, a musical rests on the music. And what made those classic musicals in the 50s and the 60s so successful is that every single one of them has a classic score that we still love today. And I think that's the big change in musicals. I think it's more story-driven, which I think is good and spectacle-driven, as we know, star-driven. And, and I think some of the magic of that era, of the actual music being the centerpiece, is now gone and changed. And we're just in a different era. And I accept that, but with my shows, my intention always is, is this possibly the best song I've ever written? Is this worthy of being in the show? Is this, is this generic in any way? Does this sound like something else? Was it too easy to write? And I ask myself all those questions before I move on, because I just for me the music just the music is that that intangible thing that when you're sitting there in a theater and, and you know this feeling, when when a musical is at its best and it does everything right, there's nothing like it in any other art form. And I think in your interview with Michael Mayer, he had mentioned that too, and that really resonated for me is that there is nothing like that experience. We all know that when we've had that magical moment in the theater, and to me that's music-driven because there's something internal that happens here in our solar plexus that, that moves us, and it moves everybody differently. So not every song or every show will work for everybody, but we know what that is when we've had... That moment, that moment I had in Light in the Piazza when the song Light in the Piazza happened. That moment I had in the band's visit in in Omar Sharif. That moment I had in so many Stephen Sondheim shows. That magical moment, and and that's what that's what I strive for.
2: Okay, so now the musical gets up, and you're in that wonderful period of previews or in early stages or wherever it is. What is your, how do you? Rewrite. Where does the instinct come? Oh, I need to change that. Do you listen to audience feedback? Tell me about that fun process.
1: So that's also a great question because when I'm writing, I never think of the audience. I only think of myself and what works for me. And I think that's really an important distinction because when you're by yourself or with your partner, you shouldn't be writing for anybody else. You should just be writing for what moves you. But as soon as you get into previews, it all changes. Then I listen to the audience. And then I let them tell me where I was right and where I was wrong because they will never lie. And you will hear them cough and you will know that moment's not working. You'll hear tepid applause and you'll go... All right, they didn't really like that so much. And and there are moments where you'll go, you know what, they're not really re- responding as as much as I want, but I really feel that moment is working anyway, and I don't need a big response there. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, with humor, that will tell you a lot. So I listen to the audience in previews very distinctly, and I love rewriting, and I love the pressure of having to write a new song in a day or two and to try to make that moment work better. The, the biggest regret, I think, in my entire career is when we were got into previews in Jane Eyre because of the massive new technology that we had with the carousel and John Napier's new set that was totally beautiful. We were not allowed to make changes in previews the way most shows could. I'll give you an example. There was a, we knew the show was too long. I knew the show was too long. I knew there was stuff that I wanted to do. and We had plenty of time to do it. But there was a moment I remember standing next to John in previews going, God, let's just cut 20 seconds there. We don't need that moment. It will just play so much better. And John said, I totally agree with you, but it will take two weeks to reprogram the carousel to do that so we can't. So I knew at that moment that we couldn't make the changes in the show that we needed to make and it broke my heart and and I've made and I vowed ever since then that previews are that opportunity where you can work on your show and make those changes that is going to give you a successful run.
2: Yeah, I think a lot of people don't realize how previews are encumbered here on Broadway by not only the large scenery that you have or don't have frankly if you need more and how long it takes to come in or stagehand rules and active rules exactly. in just a limited time yeah. which is why it's so important to do as much of that work beforehand
1: as yes, possible. Yes, exactly.
2: Uh, do you read reviews?
1: So here's how I feel about reviews. I've had two people in my life um, uh, tell me that this is what they do. I'm going to name drop Stephen Schwartz and Alanis Morissette. And so they both told me the same thing. Well, Alanis really doesn't read reviews, but she says if she does, she will read them all together. And what Stephen told me is is really the same thing. He said, "Don't read one here, one there. Read them all together." So over the years, here's my rule. Early in my career, I was devastated by I was elated by reviews and devastated by reviews. John Caird said the greatest thing. He said. If you read reviews, if you believe reviews that say you're great, you're going to have to believe the reviews that say you're crap. So where do you draw that line? Uh, opening night of Sense and Sensibility at Chicago Shakespeare. I, I love opening night until I look around the room and see the critics. And I saw them all. I saw I, – I saw I – saw, I knew who they were and I saw where they were all sitting. And it kind of ruined opening night for me because it's like I'm working so hard – and I don't want to know what you think actually right now I just want to enjoy it for a few days I feel like we're doing good and I just want to take it in and enjoy it but of course reviews are critics are reality of our business and where we are now and I think you would agree unfortunately is a great review might not help you that much and a bad review will still hurt you and so to me it's a lose-lose situation so I do now when a show is going to New York or going to that final destination. When the show is reviewed, I will gather all of the reviews and read them all and look at the through line and see if there's something that everybody is saying and does it resonate with me. And then often I will make those changes. If there's an outlier that I don't agree with, I won't do that. Now, when we did Daddy Long Legs in New York, I didn't read a lot of reviews because to me, that was our destination at that point. And then the reviews are not useful. I don't want to know what they're saying because I don't really care because I trust at this point I trust my own opinion and I trust the artists and the friends that I have around me and 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 I trust the audience. So and what's always amazing to me is how critics often ignore the audience. The first time that ever happened to me was opening night of Jane Eyre in Toronto where we didn't know anybody in Toronto. It was like a 2000 seat theater. We opened it at, at the Royal Alexandra. And it was just an incredible experience for me. It was my first opening night of a first-class production, and the audience went completely nuts for the show. And the next day, we got two reviews. We got a horrible review in The Globe and Mail and a rave review in The Toronto Star. Now, of course, I read The Globe and Mail first, and that destroyed me. And what destroyed me about this review, not that the woman didn't like the show, but there was no mention of the audience. It was like it could have been a morgue in there. Like, she hated the show, but she neglected to say that the audience went completely wild. And that was my realization of, oh, they don't care. They're just going to write what they think. And sometimes you'll have somebody with knowledge. But generally, how many critics understand music? How many of them studied music and would know anything about music to have an informed opinion? Most theater critics are like us. They know dramaturgy. They know what works for them. And they can hear lyrics. Like, that works for me, that doesn't. But I would argue that very few theater critics really understand music and are really in a position to criticize it.
2: Yeah, I've realized lately that critics' job is to find things that are wrong with something yes and take a very specific type of personality to want to wake up every day like i'm going to be negative about something today i consider yes. myself a very positive person so i'd probably always be challenged <laughs> by, uh, by those who choose okay. that path in their, in their lives exactly um, how much do the artists that you work with specifically the actors impact your writing like for example I mean, look, I was a massive Megan McGinnis fan uh, before I fell in love with Daddy Longlegs, and she had been with it for a long time. And Do you write for artists? You mentioned the understudy uh, in Les Mis, who became your first Jane. How much do the actors impact
1: you as you write? Tremendously. Especially once we are in rehearsal, what I find is good actors, after a week or two in rehearsal understand their character and often the story more than I do they're more invested I've already moved on, I'm already looking at lyric changes and this musical idea while they're studying their character so Megan as an example was so incredibly helpful to John and I and we would always listen to her ideas and 9 times out of 10 she would be right, I will say the same thing about Mar- Marla Schaffle in Jane Eyre Marla would always challenge me on a lyric and Nine times out of ten, she was right. She would say, I don't understand what you mean by this. You're not saying what you mean. And I went, of course I am. No, I'm not. Okay, you're right. I'm going to change that. And then sometimes I would say, nope, that's exactly what I mean, and that's exactly the way I want to do it, and they would be fine. But actors really help writers if writers are smart enough to listen.
2: Yeah, it's such a great point. You know, for the longest time, even when I started my professional career – I thought an actor's job was to just take notes. <laughs> like when you grow up in community theater, listen to your note, just do your note. And I find that the best actors are the ones that actually challenge those notes. they got to be respectful. Your director, your writer says, sure. no, 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 this is what I want. But the great actors out there actually push back and say, I'm in the character's body. I may have a better perspective
1: than you do right now. It's absolutely true. And one of the things John Kerr told me early on, he goes, I'm not such a great, great director. I just cast everything with the best actors, and they do all the work. And really a smart director will get out of the way of brilliant actors a lot of the time.
2: So what I love about you is you're also, you're, you're such a great example of what I call an entrepreneur and looking at ways to, to get your work out into the world. And we had some big success together streaming, uh, live streaming Daddy Longlegs uh, and getting that out there now. Now it's on Broadway HD, so yes, plug, go watch Paul's musical, Daddy Long Legs on Broadway HD. Uh, And now, from what I understand and I want to hear more about, you've developed a whole business around getting your material and other people's material out there uh, online to provide opportunities to have these shows produced. So tell us a little bit about Streaming Musicals.
1: Yes. So thanks. So with some partners, we formed a company called Streaming Musicals, and really we're creating a playground for writers, directors, and actors to create musicals in the digital age for a worldwide audience. As, as a writer and as somebody who's been on Broadway, I'm still frustrated that I have a number of musicals ready to go, but I don't have theaters to do it. Getting to Broadway, as you know, is extremely challenging. So, and, and not every show we write is a Broadway show and shouldn't be a Broadway show. Off-Broadway, shows, off-Broadway is a very tough market financially. So we've developed a model where we can produce shows in New York City or anywhere in a theater for far less income than it takes to do an off-Broadway show or a Broadway show and create an incredibly satisfying capture of a musical in a theater to, to watch digitally on any of your devices, on your computer and on your TV. So we've done two of these so far. We did Emma last February, my Emma, which was a big regional theater hit that came from Theaterworks that just won the Regional Theatre Tony Award, congratulations. And but basically the show was sitting in my drawer for five years. So I just said, I I, I want the show out here. How do I do it? So raised the money to shoot it at the Westside Theater with the three cameras and all the singing live, no audience doing this with SAG and AFM, doing all the union stuff, and now we have this beautiful capture that we can show around the world, and people are watching it, and things are happening. We have a production of Emma at Chicago Shakespeare Theatre coming um, this January, and there's also another piece of Emma news from the stream that I don't know if I'm allowed to say, so I'm just going to say Emma has been licensed worldwide, and I'm not going to announce where. It will be announced, And that was directly from the stream.
2: Directly from that stream you got Show
1: sitting in my drawer. So I just did another one of my shows this last February that's going to be released June 13th on streaming musicals and noonecalledahead.com. The show is called No One Called Ahead. And again, this is amazing for me. It's a show that had been sitting around, but it's a smaller show. So where does it go? Does it go on Broadway? Regional theaters aren't doing it. So we filmed it. And we filmed it in 11 days, and it's a month or two of post. And June 13th, we're going to have the world premiere. It will be announced. Go to noonecalledahead.com, streamingmusicals.com, and you can see my new work. And here's the other thing about the model. It's not a subscription. There's nothing to join. We don't want you to sign up on one more subscription model. So this model is just how you'd watch something on iTunes and Amazon. In fact, Emma is on iTunes and Amazon. And you can watch it right now for $4.99. And you can buy it for $19.95 and own it. Um, and, and that's the beautiful thing. And I'm tr- And I've talked to my peers and... A lot of them love this ideas. Why not create new digital theater? Now, here's the other thing about the model. It's not to replace live theater. It's to enhance it. Because what's happening with Emma? Emma was created digitally so that we could create live productions, live theatrical productions, all over the world. So now my investors who invested in Emma are now going to see a return on their investment for decades. Where if I tried to put this up, off-Broadway, you know, it's gonna be a long time for that recruitment. So this is a different, new, exciting model that I want everybody to know about and I think it's an amazing opportunity for my peers, for audiences. Look at how many people around the world um, would love to see Daddy Long Legs, would love to see Emma, would love to see these shows, but, but don't live near these theaters. So now, on their device, they can watch these shows they would have no way of seeing. And Ken, this really was your brainchild. Mm-hmm. When you had the vision to live stream Daddy Longlegs, I was like, meh, that sounds like maybe that will help. And then I went to, the, to the, the show and I saw, okay, two dudes from live stream, that's pretty cool. And then when I got home, my wife and I, Stephanie, were sitting on the couch just checking the, the uh, LA feed, the LA live feed. And I went, hey, this looks pretty good hey, this sounds pretty good. So a show that I had been so sick of seeing that I thought I could never watch again, I watched the whole thing. And I was blown away and I went, this is it. This is the future. I see it. I see how we do this now. We just need to find a way to create these with good quality and, and have a financial model that makes sense, that's fair. The other thing I really want to say is in this streaming musicals model, we actually pay the artists in perpetuity. The artists get a very significant chunk of the stream forever. The, the writers, the actors, the designers, everybody who creates the musicals wins. And that way, the the investors and the actors, they're all contributing the same. It's, it's everybody either wins or everybody loses and everybody takes the same risk. So I feel like the model is really super fair and a way for us to sort of even the playing field, in a sense, with Broadway. Because Broadway is not everybody's playground, and it shouldn't be. But I feel like there's an opportunity for people, especially young writers that are creating musicals, this could be a home for new work and a new way to show your work to the world.
2: Mm. Uh, I, I love this model. How much does it cost... So you talk about it being a fraction, of course, of what it costs yes. to show in New York. So give us a ballpark or a so, range of.
1: So, so I'm sure my team doesn't want me to say exact figures, but I will say that we, you know, we were able to do these two shows for under a quarter of a million dollars, which is significantly <laughs> less than Probably than ten
2: percent of the budget you've spent these two shows off Broadway. Yeah,
1: and the, and the thing is, your show never closes. Your market is the entire world, and you have no running costs.
2: Yeah, and you. Recouping $250,000 in licensing, especially over two shows, is something that can be done quite easily Absolutely. if the shows take off. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely, because we feel that until we have like five to ten shows, in terms of the streaming models, the pay-per-view, and that earning a return, that will take a little more time. Even though it's going well, it will still take a little bit more time to get that. But in terms of licensing these shows and major licensing houses going, wow, this show looks great. Wow, we could cross-promotion with each theater they could then buy the stream and and we're working with Van Dean and Broadway Records and he's been super supportive of the model and you know we have Emma on Broadway Records and we're talking to him about No One Called Ahead so we're just excited and I'm excited as a writer because I have something to write for instead of just writing a show and going gee I hope a regional theater does it or I hope a, bra- a producer picks it up really in this model if you can raise the money, you can do it.
2: Well, I love it. You're really taking your career in your own hands. And you know, writers should get their stuff up and should not have to wait for other people to give them permission. You're finding a way to do that.
1: Absolutely. So and that's exactly the right thought is that we shouldn't need permission to do our shows.
2: Okay, my last question, which is my genie question. I want you to imagine the genie from Aladdin comes to visit you uh, to grant you one wish. What's the? You're such a positive person. You know, we, and I think that's why we get along uh, what's the one thing that actually pisses you off about this business about Broadway that you would ask the genie to wish away in an instant?
1: I mean I, I, the, the first thing that comes to my mind is, is the notion that we need stars and celebrities to sell Broadway. I've always believed that our Broadway community be, and especially the actors but, but all of the artists they are really the best people in the world that do this. They train for this their whole lives. Look at actors who, who, who train to be on stage. I have enormous respect for TV and film artists and actors. Most of them don't train their whole lives to do musical theater, which is a very specific art form. And I, I, would, my, I would ask the genie to have more respect and more regard to... Our Broadway stars, and I mean, when I say stars, I'm talking about Megan McGuinness. I'm talking about Carrie Butler. I'm talking about Sutton, who's crossed over, and Brian Darcy James, who the world does, half the world doesn't even know what an amazing singer he is because he's crossed over into film and TV. But my wish is that those people get the attention and the recognition they deserve and that, and that Broadway recognize that we already have the best people in the world just give them the opportunity to go out there they will sell your show and they will make it happen
2: i so agree and everyone thinks stars always sell tickets and frankly when they're not good they don't
1: they absolutely don't and and if you look at all the original musicals over the last 15 or 20 years how many orig- how many stars have sh- sold those original shows yeah can't it was really think Stephen of. Schwartz
2: actually did to, to bring his name up again who uh, said to me Ken, the talent should always win.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well,
2: thank you for that. Thanks so much for being here today. Uh, And for streamingmusicals.com, which all of you uh, should go out there and check. This is the future. If you're a writer, definitely check it out. Sounds like a great way to get your work out into the world for a fraction of the cost. And we're going to go out with a little secret of happiness from Daddy Long (laughs) Legs. Check it out on Broadway HD. Thanks so much. And we'll see you all next time.
0: happiness is the secret of happiness